You are now entering the Podglomerate. You know, there are people who tell you that if there's something very complicated and unresolved in your life, you write about it and it's like therapy and it'll go away. No, it won't go away. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. And I'm Kyle. Kyle, I have to admit something to you. I wish there was more fanfare when I said my name, but go on with whatever you're about to say. I spent all day watching Star Wars fan theory videos on YouTube. Oh my god. You know what? It's been a while since I've gone down that rabbit hole, but I was sad that I didn't get to start out with the Star Wars music for this episode. I can't stop. I was going to do it and just like, you know, tease you with it, but I can't I just can't stop. It it's yeah. like you get you get one like 30 second clip in, you just keep going. <laughs> it's a rabbit hole. A conspiracy theory rabbit yeah. hole. I'm sorry. I'm just like really happy this week. It's there's a lot of cool stuff happening. My dad turned 70 on Friday. I get Damn, to see Damn, Steve you. is 70? He's old. Steve in, is still in, kicking it. In the best way. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah. He doesn't know this yet, and I am almost certain that he won't listen to this, but we got him a really good gift. I guess uh, I guess, I guess, guess just in case, I'll wait to say what it is, but... You should get him to write a book so that we can have him on the podcast. He actually, when he retired, uh, tried to get me to set him up with a bunch of editors so that he could write online. Oh, have him write that memoir. I've been trying to have him do it, and it's just like... You can ask him to write the thing a hundred times, and he's never gonna do it. I get it would be unnerving to write. It feels like when you're at the at, when you're at that point, and you're writing a memoir. It's like putting a, a bookend on it. After that, what do you do besides die? I mean, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's why. I, that's <laughs> I, I'd be a little hesitant too. I'm not gonna lie. Super morbid, but cool. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> who's on the show this week? <laughs> <laughs> too too much. Too too more. All right, cool. Uh, this week on the show, we've got Neil Mukherjee. Yeah, uh, that is N-E-E-L-M-U-K-H-E-R-J-E-E, and I spell that out only because that is uh, his website URL as well. Uh, he's the author of a new book called A State of Freedom. Um, I was really excited when I started reading this book because I thought it was going to be about a man who goes back to his home country and writes a cookbook. Uh, but what it turned out to be was so much more than that it was an anthology of uh i don't even really know it's it's a it's, it's like a novel inter- about life in india yeah i wouldn't call it i would call it a novel and not an anthology and it's like a bunch of interconnected stories that take you full circle uh and they all like loosely base themselves around food uh yeah i think anthology is the wrong th- i think it's like slices I mean, of life yeah, yeah it was definitely the wrong the wrong way to describe it <laughs> But Fine, it is Jeff. so. What if I misspoke? We're off the cuff here. Things are just happening live. It is funny though because just like the book uh, was bookended on each end by a similar character, uh, we bookended the interview with dumb questions about food. My, those are my favorite questions, though. And we did get some cooking tips from Neil, who is as passionate about food as I am. I think they're worth a listen. Honestly, we I could do a show where I just ask chefs about how to cook and learn nothing so let's get like a real let's get like a real cookbook on the show then i would i'm 100 percent down the only thing is i don't think like i think we need somebody who writes a book like the character in the first chapter of this book uh yeah sure whatever we'll figure (laughs) it out just get anthony bourdain bourdain hey come on our show my dude all right, this is Neil Mukherjee. Uh, you can find his book everywhere books are sold. It's called A State of Freedom. Let's get right to it. Welcome to Writers Who Don't Write. Hello, Neil. Hi, Jeff. Hey. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for asking me to be part of this. Yeah, yeah, of course. I mean, in this particular instance, uh, I think we found your book because the publisher had sent us some some glowing reviews, and it sounded really interesting. And uh, the book is called A State of Freedom, and we were uh, intrigued. So we read it, and uh, we were actually just talking in our previous episode that uh, some of the concepts and um, you know the subject matter in the book really like was super unique but some of it really reminded us of another book that we had read that like really revolved around food 
So I was hoping that right off the bat, we could, you know, kind of dig into your history with food and, uh, you know, the different regional uh, you know, cuisine and how that came into being in this book. Well, very simple answer is I'm a greedy person. I love eating. And, and you, know, people, you know, people consider me a foodie. I, I actually dislike the term intensely. It, 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 it implies a certain kind of fussiness and even pretentiousness about food. I'm indiscriminate. Uh, uh, I, love, I love a can of baked beans as much as something with froth and foam and two caviar rows on it to make it look like a flower. Actually, I don't like that kind of food. But 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 as I said, you know, my 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 interests. I have. I'm, I'm a broad church. Um, I did not grow up liking food at all. In fact, I remember. Uh, I have a strong childhood memory of telling my mother that I wish meal times could just be excised from human life, and like scientists would come up with a pill, and you'd give me a pill once a day, and that's it. I don't have to go to the whole fuss of eating because I hated food and then I don't know what happened I, at the age of from the age of 18 onwards I just started liking food very much and and the older I grow the the more more I like food which, which is a very dangerous thing actually um, anyway so so uh, that was my that's a sort of you know the autobiographical side of things uh, but I was also thinking that, you know, food is a since you know, the book touches, the novel touches on notions of inequality and, you know, the, the dividing lines between haves and have-nots, uh, which I also explored in my previous book, The Lives of Others, food becomes a very important way of finding out who are the haves in society or who, who are the have-nots, particularly in a society like India. Um, in in other first world societies or in wealthier societies, the the fundamental unit of difference could be different, but it's always food. You know, Britain is going through uh, economically a very rough time, and one of the things that we have seen mushroom in this country is food banks, so free food being giving to get, being given to people who need it. So. Um, Food is the is, is, is a very fundamental unit of what people need and want from life. You know, if you ask any poor person in India, what do you want from life? They will say, we want two square meals a day. And then they will say, you know, we want a roof over, your, over our heads. We want security for our children. We want them to go to school. But the first thing people will say is we want we want to eat. We want to we, we want to have a full stomach. I thought this this could be a useful way of entering the notion of people on two sides of two sides of a divide, and that divide is very stark in a country like India. So that is my interest in food. The other interest in food is, you know, when we, when people talk about, you know, say Italian food or Chinese food or Indian food, people tend to flatten them out into one monolithic thing which these things aren't so you know chinese cuisines we should we should, we should probably be speaking of indian cuisines and italian cuisines because the regional variations are so much and 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 you know the food that you eat in a particular state or a state in the east of india is very very different from the food that you eat in say one of the states in the south of india they it could be from different countries same about chinese food or italian food and i thought if i could get this particular interest into my book uh, it it would give a certain kind of depth to the work my first person narrator in that second section of the book where he's writing a kind of, you know, um, sort of anthropology, sort of, you know, cookbook, sort of coffee table book, you know, some, you know something that sits in the middle of these three points. Um, mm. I think that kind of thing about, you know, writing a book about regional Indian food would be, regional Indian breakfast in his case, that would be, uh, it, it, it would add a little bit of, wow, how should I say, sort of authenticity and depth to the thing. So that is my interest in food. I think one of the interesting things about the development of that theme, I got really excited for that section because I, I, I was, uh, I love reading about food. I am also a, 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 vi a big yeah. fan of food. And like you, I'm pretty yeah. indiscriminate yeah. when it comes to what I'll eat. Um, so I... I read that section thinking that I was going to read this journey of this man building this regional cookbook across India, and I got very excited. Um, and then the theme develops from there, and it starts to – I thought the 
an interesting direction that you went in was how you contrast the 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 story of the man writing the book about food with the people who actually cook it yeah because of the distance that you place or i guess that naturally exists between the people yeah. who cook it yeah. who are not actually yeah. allowed to eat that's it when issue. it's i i yeah. and, and that's a very good point actually i pick up on this kind of relations this kind of asymmetries throughout the book so for example in the final section you hear the voice of someone who built something in which he will never live in like and how you ask yourself the question how many of us actually uh, uh, build our own homes we don't of course somebody else builds it for us but they don't live in it themselves in india if you take if you if you think about the difference the 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 starkness the, or the or the bigness of the gap between where you live and where the person who has built your house lives is is just immense i think so um, no, so I, I, I show you plenty and then I take away from it little by little until you're left with pretty much uh, uh, nothing. Yes. It, it, was, it was a pretty bleak read, I have to say. Yes, I, I'm, 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 I'm sorry. You know, my books have got, when I wrote my first book and I read it, I thought, my God, this is really a bleak book. I don't want to be writing a bleak book like this again. And the second book was bleaker. And now this has turned out to be the bleakest. I, I, I feel I need to, I, I, I feel I need to become a different person to write my next one, which is also going to be bleak. I'm telling you now. So. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We've been warned. Well, I mean, and, and that's not necessarily a bad thing because it does lend... Uh, I mean, you mentioned authenticity before, but it also lends like a, a certain kind of emotion and feeling that the reader can pull from the story, which, you know, is generally speaking why most people read books is because they want to learn and, and feel and, and not only learn facts and dates, but also apathy and empathy. Yes, um, absolutely. And so I'm I'm wondering, uh, I, and, you know, I want to back up a step as well and, and talk about the actual structure of the book, because it is five or six stories that are intertwined uh, yeah. of people that, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, they touch upon one another, but they're also incredibly unique and, and of their own. Yeah. Uh, well, well, the structure uh, uh, fell into my head. I, I was rereading V.S. Naipaul's 1971 novel, In a Free State. And it's not been remarked, you know, he calls it a novel in t with two supporting narratives. Uh, it's actually four supporting narratives. And, and if you think of what you expect from a novel, you know, the word novel leads you to think it's going to be one unified story. You're going to read about the same cast of characters from page one to page 250 or whatever. And there's going to be a, a plot which is going to move through, you know, a series of causes and effects, but it's the same narrative, basically. And, and, um, and, and he takes all those things away from the novel. Like there are five discrete sections, each of them completely separate and self-contained. And it leads you to ask the question, why, why is this being called a novel? Uh, what, 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 what are we expected to bring to the idea of the novel when there are five narratives which do not join in any expected way we expect them to join? He does not give you any kind of stitching at all. And you realize that the, 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 those five stories stand together. This was 1971, I'm talking, you know, how, how revolutionary it was for the time. And in, in fact, I think in fiction, we have moved much towards the conservative end of the spectrum. But you realize that Naipaul's five stories cohere through theme or meaning. And, and the theme is displacement of people leaving their homes behind and making a home or trying to make a home somewhere else. Uh, and um, I, so I, that, that kind of appeared to be a very interesting experiment to me. And I thought, could we pull it off, you know, nearly 50 years down the line when the fiction climate has become much more conservative? Could we have a realist novel which takes away all those things that we expect, uh, uh, all those things that make a novel cohere, like plot or character or story or unified narrative could we take all those things away mm -hmm. and could we leave something standing behind and, that could still and, and, in, in the, in the sense novel? of the final section uh, yeah. sentence structure yeah I, I i i wanted it to have coherence through other means and you know this this actually would bring the reader in more I, it's it's more a kind of participatory kind of novel rather than a kind of novel where you are told you just read a story and that's it that's over i wanted the reader to come in and say right i have to now put all these things and 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 each person might come up with a different answer you know you know a lot of people have said 
you know, numbers one, three, and five cohere. Two and four are standalone. Uh, and, and, yeah, and, and two and four are in conversation with each other. I did not think about it that way, actually, although there is like empirical truth in, in, in that statement that one, three, and five, and two and four are related. I actually give more, more stitching, plot stitching, or uh, than 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 my Paul did in in his novel. So um, and then something serendipitous happened that you know because I'm writing about migrants whose lives are always fractured and fissured, who are always on the move, who do not understand the notion of home or their or, or their notion of home is one that has been left behind, and they're trying to find a new kind of footing in the world. Um, I wanted the novel's structure also to reflect that kind of fracture in their lives. You know, their lives, migrants' lives begin and end and begin and end and begin and end. And, you know, with every new place they go to work, with every new job they begin, with every new country perhaps they go to. So I, I wanted the novel somewhat to reflect that that fracturing in their lives as well. And I wanted to look at migrants rather than immigrants. Immigrants is a hot issue at the moment. and It will forever remain a hot issue, I feel. In fact, it will get hotter as time goes along. But I wanted to look at internal migrants within a country. I wanted to look at internal migrants within India. And if you think, you know, so much of our lives stay afloat on the labor of these people, um, I thought maybe I should try and write a book which looks at their lives from the inside. And so you're, you're touching on the theme of displacement uh, yes. because, you know, internal migration is, uh, I mean, another way of saying that, but... I mean, I, I guess my question is, you know, A, what does this look like within your own life? Because I know that you yes. have, you know, yes. kind of moved around the globe. Yes. Uh, and B, you know, is this, did you set out intentionally to write about this uh, to like call attention to it? Or because you thought that, you know, the understanding of it might help with the solution of it? If, if indeed there is a solution. Well, I'll, I'll answer B first. I No, I, I, I don't write fiction. I think very few fiction writers write fiction to work, like to point out a solution to the world. I mean, you're much more interested in representation. And, and I was trying to look at the, you know, uh, someone read the book and said to me, neither have talked about India's invisible people. And I took it as a very great compliment that, uh, which which she meant it to be actually. And I think yes, I have written about people who are constantly around us, but we do not think, what did this person eat for breakfast? Where did they wash their clothes? You know, and, and you know, ordinary questions that one might ask. So, so I wanted to write about them, and I wanted to write about the daily nature of their lives because these are people we 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 tend to overlook. You were talking about the act of empathy earlier on. Yes, I wanted to write about them with empathy and sympathy and, and with authenticity and depth that, so that you read about these people's lives and you think, yes, this is a real person on the page. Um, the first question, my my life, yes, I, I suppose I, I have been an immigrant. I, I have a very weak notion of home, actually. So, um, so much of immigrant fiction is casting a longing look back at the place you've left behind and talking about the fractures of assimilation. And, and, and uh, you know, uh, certainly American literature is very uh, rich in this kind of writing. I tried to resist that. I left home when I was 20. I was born in Calcutta in India and uh, I went to school there. I did my first degree in university there, which was in English literature. And um, I wanted to be a filmmaker, actually. And um, I applied to uh, film schools in America. I was also applying to read molecular biology. Uh, for some strange reason, because I was good in biology and it interested me, and I was I applied to schools in the U.S. and and um, I got admission to Columbia Film School and I got admission to molecular biology in Dartmouth, but it and but 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 I was in the waiting list for uh, for financial aid without which I couldn't have come, and it never came down to my name. I I still have that letter from Milosh Forman, uh, 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 he of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest and Amadeus 
fame, saying, uh, uh, congratulations, we're thrilled to offer your place. Uh, we'll be waiting to hear about financial aid. And it never came. So, so I couldn't go. So I thought, right, okay, let me go to the film school in India called FTII. And it's in a western town called Pune. But to go to FTII, you need to be a graduate. You need to have a degree first. So I thought, right, I like reading books. Why don't I do this English literature lark? So I went to university very close to where I used to live. And it was a walking distance, like 10-minute walk. And in my second year, it was a three-year undergraduate degree, in my second year, my professors, who had all done their uh, PhDs in Oxford or Cambridge, got hold of me and said, look, you have to go to Oxford. So I applied. And then uh, I was lucky. I I, I got into uh, Oxford and and um, then I got luckier. I, I, I got a scholarship to... To come to Oxford. So my career went in a very different path. I, I set out to be a filmmaker. Then I became an English scholar. And because all my teachers were 16th century scholars, I also thought I'm going to be an academic specializing in the Renaissance in the early modern period. Uh, so I finished my second degree in Oxford. Then I went to Cambridge to do my PhD. And I finished my PhD, but quite early on in my PhD, I realized that this right, this academic thing was not for me for for various reasons. I thought, no, I am not cut out for it. But but just to like backtrack a little bit, when I left India uh, at the age of twenty two, uh, I knew that I was not going to come back. I, I was very clear in my head that I was going to try and make my make a home in the West. So a kind of volitional migration rather than enforced one. So um, so anyway, so a PhD, I finished my PhD because my funding and my stay in Britain was tied up to uh, uh, finishing the work. And then I moved from Cambridge to London. You know, writing was writing novels, writing fiction was never uh, my thing. So, so it I I came to it by a series of failures. So I failed to become a filmmaker. I failed to become a Renaissance academic. So writing was my last chance saloon, actually. So I went to create. Someone said, "Go to creative writing school." There's a creative writing school. You you can go there and stuff. Um, and all these writers have come out of it, Ian McEwan and Kazuo Ishiguro and Han and Enright. I thought, oh, right, okay, let me go and check this place out. This was at the ripe old age of 30. And I went to creative writing school, and that's what set me on the writing path. So, and then my road to publication was incredibly difficult and unhappy. My first novel did not come out in England until I was 40 years old. So for 10 years, um, I, well, for eight years, I worked as a fiction critic for the London Times. Uh, my first novel was written. Uh, it did not find a home. It uh, went under a bed for several years and then a plucky publisher in India published it first. It had a different title in India called Past Continuous. And then the, once again, another sort of stroke of luck, it won a prize. And then thing, then a friend in, in England picked it up and said, look, I want to publish this book. And he published the book in Britain in 2010. Uh, under a slightly different title, A Life Apart. And that book started getting some attention. And a lot of senior writers uh, uh, were very supportive of the book, you know, most notably uh, Rose Tremaine and A.S. Byatt and J.M. Kutsia. And and um, so, yeah, I, I, I got... I, it was not good at the beginning and then I got lucky and luck plays such a big role in this game. It's such a tough game. I feel like, you know, every time I teach students and they say, or, or I go and give a talk somewhere and they say, we want to be writers. And I say, don't. Yeah. Just don't. The game is just too tough. It'll break you. I, I think that there's two pieces here that, that will lead into a question, but uh, I, I went to my undergrad was in creative writing and in addition to English and a couple other yeah. uh, items. But yeah. I, the one thing that I was really disappointed in when I got out of school was that 
I actually like didn't have anything to write about because I hadn't really studied any other subjects. Right. I mean, obviously fiction, you can write about whatever you want, but yeah. I, I didn't feel prepared and it took me a little bit before I found my footing. And then in an interview with Publishers Weekly, mm-hmm. you said something that I've heard many times before, uh, that it was a mistake to go to creative writing school. And now you're talking about your students who want to be writers and you're asking them why. And so I'm wondering if you can just like elaborate a little bit on this. Um, so I'm, I'm very new to the teaching game. I, I, only, I, taught my, I taught for the first time ever in my life last year. Uh, uh, I taught spring semester last year in the U.S. And I'm traveling next week to the U.S. again to teach spring semester again. Uh, uh, so At Harvard, I'm, no less. Yeah, this, this 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 year in Harvard, but last year it was in Princeton. So um, simply because you know, I mean, Edmund White, who is a who is a friend and he is a big fan of my work, he basically said to uh, uh, the chair at Princeton, "You guys should get him to come over and do a semester of teaching." So you know, so I went and did it, and I surprised myself. I liked it enormously, enormously. I thought, "Wow, this is fantastic." Why have because I had such a terrible experience at creative writing school and I'm going to come to it in a bit um, I thought it would be similar being on the other side as well it'd be terrible teaching as well um, but in the event um, because Princeton does not have a dedicated MFA uh, the 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 children are man I call them children they're just so young I call them children the, the students are the undergraduates are doing you know they're doing something I don't know psych med or neuroscience or English or economics and they take writing courses so so there is this nothing I mean you know they're just trying it out you know for size and 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 um there is none of this jostling and competition and envy and backstabbing that can become very uh, 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 prevalent things in a, in, in a sort of creative writing MFA uh, where everyone's trying to uh, like you know get a publishing deal have a collection of short stories or a novel and you know they're trying to get agents and uh, so there was none of that so that was very rep- refreshing and I always I still maintain that you know you cannot teach people how to write you know uh, uh, what I did was I had a very big section in my classes I gave them assigned text and we talked about you can teach people how to read and you know if you don't read you don't write so uh, uh, and you know the uh, the 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 best way you we come to know the world is th- is largely through reading you know you know you haven't served in the Iraq war or you haven't you know uh, lived through the, through Vietnam or you know whatever but uh, but but a book is something that will open up this world to you um, so much of the knowledge of the world we get is from books. Uh, so, I, so I taught them how to read. And what we did was we would isolate something particular about craft. Say, uh, let's look at character in a Flannery O'Connor short story. Or let's look at what Grace Paley is doing with voice in a particular story. And then, th- and then it's up to them what they then carry on thinking on the particular topic, what else they read. But you give them a particular example and a particular tool. Uh, so so we so so we did that. My creative writing experience was 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 not great. I um, I went to a school called University of East Anglia, which is reputed to be the best uh, creative writing school in the country. It was none of that. It had uh, like and and. Uh, uh, terrible teacher and um, one particular one in particular the chair of the department and completely out of his depth teaching fiction there I don't know what he was doing uh, and then there were extra curricular things that 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 went wrong that impinged on the uh, uh, on the course and on the experience there but no I did not have a great time and I extrapolated from there mistakenly that I would not have a great time teaching either but you know context gives meaning and that context was unhappy and you know if you are you know transplanted to a different context for me the Princeton context was absolutely wonderful and I made friends with people and you know I enjoy teaching very much so um, yeah so here I am in about eight days time I'm leaving the country and going to warm sunny Boston uh, to, to <laughs> teach. 
the weather yeah. couldn't be better. Yeah. I want to I want to touch on something you mentioned when you were talking about uh, your time teaching, and I think it's it's something that I've definitely heard before from writing professors that I've had, but it, I've never had a chance to actually ask one about it in the moment. You mentioned that you don't think it's possible to teach people how to write, um, and I think that's particularly interesting coming from uh, an eventual writing <laughs> professor. No, you. <laughs> um, yeah. So I want to I, I wanted to ask about the disconnect between teaching people to read and teaching people to write. Where do you think the breakdown is? I don't know. Actually, I'm in the process of working these things out myself. You 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 start with something. I think you know if 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 you can't if you don't know how if someone doesn't know how sentences work. And, and what prose style is. And you have to immerse yourself in these topics by reading as widely and as voraciously as possible. You know, you read great stylists. You read someone like Flaubert or you read like a difficult stylist like, say, Faulkner or Patrick White. Uh, um, and, 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 and these are the books that teach you how to, like, they teach you what has been done with language, what has been done on the level of sentence, on the level of paragraph, on the level of architecture of a book. No one can tell you after you have given, after you've submitted your writing sample to a professor, the professor can't tell you this doesn't work because, you know, you, there, there are no set rules in this business and, and, uh, and there shouldn't be. So you may be studying certain authors, so you may want to write like Hemingway, but you can't write like Hemingway because, it, because his writing is like a fingerprint. Only he could do it. So, so you cannot really teach people how to write. So, I'll, there, there's another, there's another related thing. You know, a great writer doesn't teach you how to write. A great writer teaches you how to look at the world, and that I think, in the end, is mm. much more important than your attempt to assimilate the world and put a particular shape on it. But the, but the first thing is is of paramount importance, I think. And I'm still trying to concentrate on the first thing, and I've I've not yet made the leap to to number two. So, so 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 I don't know what I would say. I I would say I you have to come with something to create a writing class in order to know that you can write. I mean, often you know, so many people not drop out, but they don't like get a book published, not because they are bad or anything, because the industry is saturated, its demands are different. And then you have to be very clear in your head why you are a writer. Uh, this is a very difficult thing to uh, understand oneself because self-delusion gets in the way, and and imperfect knowledge of your own self gets in the way. You know, be, what what do you write for? Do you write for fame? Do you write for money? Do you write because you have to say something about the world? Do you write to entertain other people? All these are very noble objectives, but but but. Uh, uh, Perhaps not writing to be famous because that is not a noble objective. I feel so, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, I, I, I feel you must be able to stand in front of a mirror and between you and your God, you have to return a very clear and truthful answer to yourself, and then you say, "Right, I'm going to do this now." This is a very difficult thing to do. Can I ask you what your answer to that question is when you look at yourself in the mirror and ask why you want to write? I don't think I'll be writing forever, you know. I feel there are certain things about the world that I want to say and I'm hubristic and conceited enough to think that perhaps I'm saying this in a way that no one else is. Uh, when I feel I don't have anything to say anymore, then I will stop. Um, also, writing comes from a place of compulsion. You know, the, the, mm. this is what makes a, a book for me. Say when I'm reading a book, however beautifully written it is and whatever it is teaching me about the world and however entertaining it is, I think um, for me, a book is made or broken by one and one thing only. I must feel at some point in the reading of the book that it has come from a place of compulsion on the author's part. If I don't have that, somehow mm. the book doesn't work for me. So I, I think uh, I think that there's uh, a lot to be said as well that you know yes writing is an industry and uh, you know people can make money in the publishing game yeah, or in yeah. the media game but also you know it doesn't necessarily have to be something that you're doing for other people it can be something that you're doing for yourself through journaling through writing stories uh, you don't necessarily have to have an end game that's absolutely that that's very true i you know nowadays I, i'm actually the older i get the more i begin to realize that you know writers actually write for themselves 
See, mm-hmm. see if, you, if you try and think of, you know, when they ask you, you know, you don't think about your readership, people may say to, to a writer. It's very difficult to think about a readership. What is a readership? Yeah. It's an abstract concept, you know. So, so like, how, 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 which way does it cut? Do you divide, divide a readership by gender, by class, by nationality, by income bracket? Who is reading you? You do not know. And there is no one ideal reader in your head, you know. I mean, I have had different editors for different books. I don't ha- even have, you know, there are writers who have worked with one editor for the entirety of their life. They, per- they perhaps write for their editor. When they sit down to write, they have the image of their editor in their heads. I don't. So ultimately, <laughs> at the end, you are, you are writing for yourself. Uh, so j- just to go back to that point, you know, once I've finished saying what I have to say, what I want to say about the world or, or what interests me, I may want to change the game and I want to, I, you know, crime fiction has appealed to me a lot, you know, I mean, it, it, it still appeals to me a lot. I'd like to try my hand at it one day, you know, uh, uh, it's a very, very difficult thing to do well, as everything in life is difficult to do well. But uh, um, I mean, I think crime fiction is, is, <laughs> is, is terrific. It requires a certain, you know, very sharp intelligence to write a very good crime fiction book. Like Thomas Harris comes to mind. I mean, I think he's a god, actually. Uh, uh, he's, ter- he's, he's, ter- he's terrific. <laughs> I recently reread uh, uh, Red Dragon and Silence of the Lambs. And I was thinking, this man knows so much about the world. He knows so much about it. He know- there, There's one particular moment in Silence of the Lambs where a television journalist is interviewing someone. Um, and like a little detail about moving the mic away or where she has to stand in order to interview so that the camera does not pick her up. I thought you can only know this if you have lived this life. That I, I, I love that kind of thing. Um, someone recently said if I... Actually, several people asked me if I was interested in writing a cookbook, which the first-person narrator in Section 2 of State of Freedom is writing. Mm-hmm. Uh, cookbooks are very, very difficult things to, for publishers to do unless you're a celebrity. So uh, my English publisher publishes uh, 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 someone called Nigella Lawson. So... I, I, so I do oh, not yeah. think they are going to be interested in Neil Mukherjee writing a cookbook. So, uh, but you know, it would be nice to. And 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 I've also tried to write the three. No, I'm only three books old. So you know, but I've tried to write a different book each time. So. Let me tell you about Studio Sweden. Currently, the headphones market can offer you one of two things: style or tech. And Studio Sweden is trying to change that. They sent me the tray model. They look awesome and they fit perfectly into my ears. They even send you like two or three different cap styles, I think is what they're called. So if you got weird shaped ears like I do, you can switch it up. Uh, My favorite part about them is that they do not fall out of my ears when I run, which is a very hard thing to find for me personally. When it comes to Bluetooth headphones, uh, I can't say enough good things about them. If you want to check them out, go to studiosweden.com. You can get your own pair of headphones by using the discount code WWDW, which will give you 15% off any purchase. That's studiosweden.com and enter the code WWDW at checkout to get 15% off today. It's very funny that you say that because, uh, I mean, you had a section in in the book where you're talking about how, um, like, this recipe is the same as everybody else who writes uh, or who who makes that particular dish, but it has to do with, like, the hands of the person who is actually making it. And it's very similar in that sense. Like, yes, you can put the directions on a page, but it doesn't mean it's going to become something. Yeah, yeah. The reason that the the comment about not being able to teach people how to write is because I've heard as a fan of food and now someone who's learning to cook in fits mm-hmm. and starts, uh, it did mm-hmm. not go well at first. But there is a, the one thing I find extremely frustrating when you come across a recipe is when it refers to things that have to do with the yeah. hand or the touch yeah. when they say yeah. to taste. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. When, it, yeah. when you're working through a sort of mechanical yeah. paint by numbers thing and it's it's interesting to think about that concept applied mm. to writing where you can actually break down yeah. physically in yeah. real, like you have actual yeah. physical components yeah. to work with, but it takes so much else to actually go back and say, here is how you do this. Absolutely. This is how this I, works. I was talking exactly about this in, in relation to cooking, actually, yesterday evening. And I was I, I was making the observation that, you know, what, what cooks, people who know how to cook, and are giving instructions to someone else who might not know how to cook, they 
they assume a lot of things that 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 is not you know not necessarily known by the person who's setting out so you know you know certain hacks right so yeah. so and and i think it would be good to write a cookbook with the with all the hacks made transparent so you know yes. you know something like you know you have a loaf of bread and you slice it so the trick i learned was you never press down on the loaf and you you keep your hands steady and you do not press down with the knife you saw you saw quickly and you have to keep the knife moving back and forth back and forth on the surface of the bread until it's cut down if you press down with the knife it won't cut so that's that's a that's a hack you know yeah. i think if mm-hmm. i if 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 i had learned this you know when i was like younger it would have made life so much easier and not resulted in you know uh, like wedges instead of slice or 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 you know whatever so 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 those hang you know someone told me that you know if you press down on a clove of garlic if you cut the base off and you press down mm-hmm. the skin becomes loose and you can peel the skin off very easily these are the hacks i yeah, think which it, need it also to re- releases I, a little bit of the flavor it's it's very similar to uh yeah. <laughs> i hate to make this comparison but it's like when harry potter finds uh the half blood half blood prince's potion book yeah you know <laughs> yeah 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 do you, do you know do you, funny you should mention harry potter my students in princeton last year last year the only author they have all read i realized is jk rowling because they came they came <laughs> of age with harry potter I, I, I mean, I those books have a certain kind of magic in them that, like, I have yeah, yet to be able to yeah. put my finger on. But yeah, yeah. I can read the. I, I've read each of them a dozen times, and it's it's still just as good wow. as the first time. Yeah. And what about Philip Pullman? Have you read the the yeah the, the Golden yeah, Compass you series? You yeah, 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 yeah. Did you do you like them? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it, I, it I never struck the same chord, <laughs> but yes. Right. Yeah, I can understand. Yeah. Well, I want to I don't want to let this go though cuz the the one thing I've been look, the the one thing I searched for in these interviews uh, the uh, now that you've said it out loud, I feel like I can refer to it is the hacks mm. because there it is clear to me from discussing this with all these people that we've met and all these fantastic authors that we've had the chance to sit down with is there are hacks. They do exist. There are sort of shortcuts in the method of how you go about putting together your view of the world and then translate it to something that is interesting to read and has something to say. So, But there is no one general rule for a hack. It, it is completely dictated by the context and by, by, the, by the particular story that you're telling, by the people who are your characters, by the lives that you're giving them, by the world that you're writing about. So, so, so there's... So, this is why I tell my students, you know, uh, I can't tell you how it is done because how it is done is true for only that particular case that you are reading. You may want to do it your way. Do not do it like Grace Paley because she has done it. That would be sub Grace <laughs> Paley, you know. Do it like you yeah. would. So, 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 so in, in some ways, rules don't really matter because you will be breaking them anyway. So, and the other thing I say, you know, there are, there are things that people call, you know, uh, a novelist detail. So I found out when I was writing my first book, which has an inset novel in it, and mm. that is complete in itself. And that's set in early 20th century British India. I discovered while I was doing the research for it, that pianos were, the piano legs were kept on... Uh, each leg was positioned on a small saucer or a caster which was full of water. And that was because it was to prevent ants or insects from climbing up the piano legs and building nests in the keys. And I thought, oh my God, this is a a novelist detail. And I should not write about this in in that way at all. I should just say a piano in the room sitting on on its legs on sitting on little saucers of water and leave it there and not explain why they were sitting on saucers of water. Um, There was a novel called The Stranger's Child by Alan Hollinghurst. And he, there's a detail in the book about how two young men, uh, one of them uh, who comes from a very wealthy family and has a butler, uh, the family has a butler. And these two friends, they are friends. So they come to the home of the wealthy friend's home and, and, the, they, they change into casual clothes and the butler takes out all their change and washes the change. 
And I asked, I, I asked Alan, Alan, what's, what, why does the butler wash the change? And he said to me, oh, you know, because it was changed, it had gone through God knows who, whose hands. So, you know, it was to, 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 to get the filth of common and ordinary people's hands of, of those kinds. And I thought, wow. They said, and I said, how did you find this? He said, oh, don't ask me how I found it. I, I just don't remember. But, but this is exactly, suddenly, he, 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 he will throw in a detail and that will make you completely believe that world, that he knows that world backwards. Mm -hmm. So that's one hack that you can teach students. Write about the world in such a way that the reader has complete confidence that you know the world inside out. You don't have to tell the reader all the things that you know. You tell them one thing that will make you believe you the writer, that you are in charge of this whole world that you're creating on the page for them, and they'll go with you anywhere. There it is. That is, see, there it is. That is exactly what we're looking for. That's a hack. Or what I'm looking for. That's I can't speak for Jeff. Yeah. yeah. I just feel like, so with cooking, it's been a learning process. Um, my father is a, a fantastic cook, but has never been able to actually explain what he's doing while he does it. So I watched him one day, mm. and the difference is... He has this innate understanding of the utensils that he works with. Yes. And I think part of what we try to do or what I try to do here is to get a better look at some of the utensils that these authors are familiar with, particularly the authors that we like and love that we bring on the show. Mm -hmm. So I appreciate you sharing that. Okay, uh, so one, particular one, utensil one, 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 one trick is uh, uh, use good pots and pans, obviously. <laughs> um, uh, uh, I found out that... Uh, cast iron, stainless steel, heavy bottom stainless steel. These are all very good. And when you are uh, uh, browning, so like like it has to be very hot before you put in the oil. And when you put in the oil, the oil has to be really smoking before you put in something like I don't know tofu or chicken quarters or something. Yeah. But when you put wet things in a in a pan, such as eggs or tofu or chicken skin down, chicken legs, something let them sit and do not prod and push and poke and try to lift. Yes. You give it five <laughs> to seven minutes for a crust to form and then it'll lift easily without the skin breaking and things sticking to the bottom of the pan. This is also, yeah, this is also a oh. trick I learned very late in life. <laughs> the, same. There's same. One, <laughs> one rule that I think, uh, and it's similar to what you mentioned, but I think it can be applied to, to writing, to music, to cooking, to uh, conversations. And it's that silence is not necessarily like the absence of something is not necessarily nothing. You know, yes, when you absolutely. cook a steak, Good you're point. supposed to let it sit for a few minutes uh, so that the juices can like continue. The steak will absolutely. continue to cook in its own juices. When you leave like absolutely. an empty pause in music, it's because yeah. it's preparing the listener yeah. for whatever's to come next or letting them absorb what has already happened. And the same absolutely. applies it's to a, writing. It's a very very important point actually i think you know you think of we think of build spaces for example we think you know a building configures you know uh, a, a space configures presence because there's a presence of wall and floor and stuff but a space also configures absence there is all the room inside a space you know so absolutely i, I totally take your point it's a very it's a, it's, a, it's a very good point actually so what you're saying is just leave a blank page every once in a while <laughs> Hey, oh, I would love to write a book where every page is blank and then there's a little bit of writing here and there and I could be done so quickly with it. Well, and, and, and <laughs> I mean, I, I know that, you know, all joking aside, like sometimes it takes a blank page to leave you the room to come up with whatever is coming next. I I'm, I, I'm, I have a horror of the blank page like most writers because you sit and contemplate it and you become Jack Nicholson in The Shining. So that, that that is not a good that is not a good look, but but I I, I you know I try and end a day's work. Uh, I often end it mid sentence so that the following day I know I do not I don't have to contemplate a blank page. I can at least end the sentence that I did not finish the previous day. And it's the beginning that is always difficult. And if you have written, if you've written twenty words, like to complete a sentence, or you've written two sentences, then you know you 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 know you can write. I try and write five hundred words every day when I'm writing. I'm not writing at the moment. Um, if you've written twenty words, you know you can write another four hundred and eighty. It's funny that you say that. That's I don't know if this is where you got it from, but that's an old trick that Hemingway used to do. 
leave a sentence DT, I didn't know that. Yeah, I I'm I'm not a huge I'm I'm not a huge fan of Hemingway. I I I uh, I read him when I was a teenager, and I don't I I think Hemingway is a very much an adult writer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he, I think that he, uh, he he gets a lot of credit because of you know the time and place that he was writing. Were he to be around today, I don't know if he would get that same credit. You think? I mean, I I don't know. This is just my own, my own opinion. Shade. No, I yeah, I mean I love Hemingway, <laughs> but I mean he's very much a writer of his time. You know, I I don't know if he would have had the same effect if it, if he was writing in 2018. I I I think I did not. I mean, I read many writers when I was younger, and I just did not get them. So, for example, Kafka is very much an a, like a, like a, a mature person's writer, or the poetry of W. B. Yeats. You get more out of it as you grow older. Um, so yeah. So, I was. I think now is the time of the show when we should make the transition where we talk about uh, the particular stories that you've struggled to tell, Neil. Okay. Um, I, I I gave you a list, which is um, uh, and it was in a sort of escalating scale. <laughs> let's put it that way. The the <laughs> first one was I had to write a long review essay about a recent book about Indian caste. I can talk about the book because the book is astonishing. Uh, Her name is Sujatha Gidla, the writer of this book. Uh, And she comes from uh, one of the untouchable, what used to be called untouchable, and they're now called Dalits. The word Dalit can be literally translated correctly as downtrodden. Um, And uh, she read engineering in a in a re- regional engineering college in Andhra Pradesh in south of India called Warangal and um, then she left India and started working in a data processing company in the US and now she's New York City's first uh, female subway conductor and she wrote a book called Ants Among Elephants and it's a uh, it's it's a memoir. It's a memoir of growing up untouchable in India. Uh, it's also quite brilliantly um, a, a, an oral history of ultra-left activism in the south of India. Her uncle was a famous Maoist guerrilla uh, in the late 60s, which saw a lot of ultra-left Maoist uh, militancy in, in the south of India and in the east of India. And um, uh, I read the book. It's stupendous. I'm yet going to write the review essay, but I I just couldn't write it on time. So I had to write to the publication and say, look, I can't do this. And um, I've been talking about the book to every person I meet because I want everyone to go out and read this book. And the other reason I couldn't write about it is because, you know, the uh, in Indian writing is not exactly thin on this particular topic of caste. And I wanted to sort of write a very responsible piece about it. And I wanted to bring in other writings of caste that we have grown up with and I've read. And I wanted to place that, her book in context. Um, so, so that was just, you know, I, I couldn't concentrate. I, uh, I missed a deadline and then it got more difficult to write and you keep promising people I'm going to give it in and turn it in in one more week or one more month and stuff. You know how it is. And, and this, this must be the oldest reason for not doing something. You know, something happens that makes you procrastinate and you never get back on the wagon again. Uh, terrible, I know. But, but I, 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 <laughs> I will yet write this review essay. Uh, uh, this could be famous last words, actually. Um, <laughs> my the the second reason I gave was uh, I had a I I had a very complicated relationship with my mother, and um, <clears throat> there there uh, well we are two brothers, and uh, our parents died. When I was 21, my mother died nine days after my dad. And um, and exactly a year after their deaths, I came to England. And so it was only realistically when I came to England and I was alone that I, I began to mourn them. And uh, I tried to write about my mother 
in or or my relationship with my mother formed the basis of the relation the, there's a very there are two mother son relationships in my first novel a life apart and i and i used my the relationship with my mother as the basis for one of them it was difficult to write about and and because it was constantly bringing her to mind and and um I mean, I loved her deeply and profoundly, and and I missed her a lot. And but but it was not a straightforward relationship. There was a lot of, uh, uh, as I said, you know, it was a very complicated relationship. And um, you know, there are people who tell you that if there's something very complicated and unresolved in your life, you write about it, and it's like therapy, and it'll go away. No, it won't go away. Uh, these things don't go away. You just learn to live with them and time makes things duller. But, you know, uh, uh, writing about it is not the way to exercise something from your system. The third thing I gave you, and this was the most, uh, the most immediate and possibly one of the hardest things I've ever done, is there's a in this my in my new novel a state of freedom in the longest section is in the book is 100 pages it's section 3 and it talks about an itinerant man i call him a bearwala because you know wala is the you know uh, so 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 a person who went around showing shakespeare plays in india would be called shakespeare wala for example you know so uh, a, a man who sells Bottles would be called bottlewala. So, um, and this bearwala, uh, he he's an itinerant, and he chances upon a bear cub, and he and you know bear dancing in India has always been a big thing in the streets of India. You know, a man goes around with a bear, and you know he he plays a particular kind of handheld drum, and he sings, and he makes the bear turn tricks, and you know, and the bear dances. And it was an unbearably cruel practice, and it was banned in India in the late 70s. But, you know, in India, in a country like India, a ban is one thing, and enforcing the ban is quite another. So um, uh, you still see these people around, and, and, and they, they come from a particular community, a very, very, very poor and indigent community called the Kalandars. Uh, they're a Muslim community who came to India in the... 14th century or something as early as that and um, they're even poorer than the bears you know and 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 this is the only way that their 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 traditional livelihood is actually uh, taking a bear out into the streets of india and and making the bear dance i found out how a bear is made to dance and it's it's unthinkably cruel and the bear's nose is pierced and its teeth are knocked out and a rope is put through the nose of the bear and the bear is actually dancing while the nose is where the rope is being pulled the bear is not dancing the bear is you know moving around with pain um and you know so i i i don't know why i wanted to write about it that's a question that's an answer i do not know actually why how did this bear come to me but when I was doing the research for it, I found the research unbearable. I had to look. I, I've spoke to people. Uh, in fact, there's an interesting... Uh, the, the, this is something you might be interested in. I got in touch with the wildlife SOS people in India uh, who are absolutely terrific people. And the two people who run the outfit, Kartik Satyanarayan and Geeta Seshamani, they they uh, gave me all the information I wanted by email and we had Skype conversations and they took me through the lives of these bear wallas, the lives of the bears, the saved bears, how they come by the bears. They gave, they gave me, they, they set me up with everything. But the first conversation I had with them, I we fixed a time and date to talk. I opened Skype and the secretary came on and said, listen, Karthik can't talk to you today because he is remote rescuing a bear cub in the border of Nepal and India. So he cannot do, do this conversation with you. And I said, can I just sit in on this call and hear what he's doing about the rescuing of the bear cub? And they said, yes, but you won't be able to hear very much. Anyway, they, I left Skype open and I heard him remote rescue a bear cub from the border of Nepal and India. Uh, a, a bear cub who was going to be sold into bear dancing. 
Wow. So I did the research and then I thought, right, I, I, if, it was not, if it was not a happy thing doing the research, I'm going to put it away. And, and I did not write that section then because I thought, this will kill me. I, you know, there are, there are difficult things one has to write about and one becomes a different person when one is writing about them. And it takes you to a bad place and you, and you don't want to be around people and you, you just want to write it in a cabin somewhere. And I got my cabin. I got my cabin in McDowell Colony <laughs> in, in February 2016. Um, and that's when I sat down to write about my bear, Raju, and his keeper, Lakshman, and uh, yeah, I had to do it in one go because I did not want to be writing about it day after day after day. I, I gave myself a very short period to write about these unbearably cruel practices. And uh, uh, yeah, that, that, that was a thing I found very difficult to write. I think the one of the it sounds like one of the through lines here is that when it's emotionally challenging, you have to find a new way to prepare yourself for it. Yeah. Um, I I don't know any kind of preparation that would really be useful. You just have to do it. You know, ultimately, you have to write the book. And the only way a book gets written is you sit down and write it. So you can dance around it for several days or weeks or months. But ultimately, if you, someone once told me, if you're not writing about something or you're avoiding writing about it, that is the heart of your book. And maybe that rule is not a general rule for every writer and every book and every topic, but it's, it's, it, it covers a lot of things, I think. So, uh, yeah, one just has to sit down and do it. The number one thing that we've learned on this this show, and we've done you know fifty plus episodes over the the course of the last two years, is that the only person stopping you from writing is yourself. And if you want to do it, you'll find a way, and you'll push through the difficulties. And it sounds like that's kind of an experience that you had. Uh, and as a total aside, you know, the McDowell Colony is also where the other um, you know food oriented writer that we had on the show prior had written her book. So there's something in the water up there. Um, and something in the food. I can tell you, I, I can tell you something about Mac, the McDowell kitchen, actually. The, the, the real artists there are not the people who are there in residency. The real artists are the people who are working in the kitchen. Oh my God. I cannot tell you. <laughs> I have never eaten food like that in my life. It's the, it's, you know, when I die and go to heaven, that, that is going to be the kitchen serving food to all the people. They, they, they are just extraordinary. They are extraordinary. We got fed like kings. And everyone puts on an extra five to seven pounds when they leave McDowell. It's, it's called the McDowell five pounds. So, yeah. And Kyle, if you didn't know, this is in New Hampshire. So, yeah. Oh, really? It's in Peterborough, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I grew up in New... I did, I did not I, I grew up in New Hampshire, now. so any, any chance I get to... You know, shout about how amazing it is. I will. It is. It and in fact, I wrote my. I, I in fact, I I could only write to State of Freedom because I had the residency in McDowell Colony. I thank them in the book, of course. So. I read that actually. I hope I get to go back there again with book four or something. Yeah. Well, hey, it's, we'll we'll send them <laughs> this episode and we'll just say, hey, zoom, <laughs> zoom into the fifty-five minute mark. Yeah. So. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well. Neil, thank you so much for joining us. This was a wonderful, wonderful conversation. Thank you for asking me. It's been a great pleasure. It's been really wonderful. That was Writers Who Don't Write. I'm Jeff. My co-host is Kyle. Thank you all for joining us. You can find Neil Mukherjee's book, A State of Freedom, wherever books are sold, or online at neilmukherjee.com. N-E-E-L-M-U-K-H-E-R-J-E-E. He's great. I loved having him on the show. It was really cool to talk about food, writing, life, India, all of the above. You just heard the interview. You get it. Uh, we are Writers Who Don't Write. You can find us online at thepodglomerate.com slash writers who don't write. Uh, speaking of, we are a production of The Podglomerate. Uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff being offered on that platform. Uh, we just launched a show called Consumed with Scott Porch. You'll probably hear a trailer for that in a minute. Uh, it is an interview with a bunch of people who have created properties meant for the digital space. 
uh, a lot of famous people that you know and love. Uh, we're also launching season two of Status, which tells the story of uh, immigrants and uh, immigration policy and the people that they affect. Uh, it is brilliant. Um, probably one of the better producers on the whole network. And I really, really love listening to all of his stories. So check those out. Uh, you can find us online at www.podcast on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We want to thank Studio Sweden for advertising on the show this week. We want to thank Ryan Dan of Holland Patton Public Library, who did the music that you heard at the top and the bottom of the hour. You can find him at hollandpattonpubliclibrary.com. New album coming soon. Sign up for his newsletter. It's great. He's great. Can't wait. Uh, the music that you heard in the middle of the show is from Ben Sound, who you can find at bensound.com. I really love that sound. It's so good. Uh, and join us in two weeks where we do not know who our next guest is. Thanks for joining us. Have a good one. The Podglomerate. A Sonic Universe.